welcome to another extra special, extra wonderful Final Fantasy Ten Two edition of Normandy FM. I am Eric Van Allen, one of your co-hosts, alongside Ken Shepard. Ken, we are so close to the finish line. That's true. We got three whole episodes left before we head to Night City. Oh, God. When we jump in the giant hole, it turns out that Night City awaits us at the bottom. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's, that's the secret of Final Fantasy X-2. Yeah, you gotta press X at like, the right time during a couple cutscenes and to unlock that ending. Uh-huh. But, uh, uh, yeah, that's... a whistle. You know. <laughs> uh, we're, we're here today to cover Final Fantasy X-2 before we get to Cyberpunk 2077. And most importantly, we're here to cover Final Fantasy X-2 Chapter 5, what we're calling part one, because as we are once again near the end, and uh, we we have a game that is a bit more open-ended, let's say, uh, we got to kind of check off some hot spots. This is our last chance to, to do things. The game even tells us, as we are on board the Celsius, they're like, hey, well, we got to jump down one of those giant holes and, and help out Nuge and, and Gipple. Really, Nuge is the center. Uh, mm. They keep saying, like, we got to help Nuge out. And Gipple really just gets done dirty by the narrative. That's that's one of my early <laughs> hot takes. I mean, he's just along for the ride at that point. Yeah, yeah. Ain't nothing wrong with him. But uh, we, we know that we got to do that. We know that that is where we got to go. But then they also, the game strongly uh, insinuates to like, hey, once you go down that hole, you're probably going to the end of the game. So maybe if you want to do some stuff in Spira before you get there, knock some episodes out or whatever, uh, you might want to might want to stay above ground. You might want to hang out above ground for a little while. So that's what we're doing. We're knocking out all the non whole related content <laughs> um all all the uh the early hot spots and stuff from all the areas that we've been doing and, and as a fresh reminder for any of you who haven't been paying attention uh throughout our previous episodes we are not 100 percenting this game ken and i are wanting to r- retain our sanity <laughs> let's say uh so there are uh segments of this that we had to kind of go and, and look up, uh, kind of go and, and watch some YouTube videos on and refresh ourselves on. Uh, so we'll, we'll, we'll note those when we get there. That's mainly things that are like, uh, in, in early example is Bevel and, and the Via mm. Purifico, uh, which is a giant boss battle tower that, uh, whoo doggy. It, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's things I, I've I never watched. Yeah, I would just yeah. say, like, there are a lot of things in this chapter specifically that over the past 19 years, every time that I've played this game, I've actually still never gone done. And I think, like, some, one of my biggest takeaways as I was, like, going through the stuff we actually did play, but then also watching the stuff that we did not, it's like, I really wish that I had, like, the time to really, like, you know, do, like, the whole min-max thing of, like, getting characters to, like, level 99 of, like, really powerful dress spheres and, you know, really taking the time to go and do those really tough late game things but the, like the window for me to have done that was when i played the game originally as a fucking fifth grader and not now when i'm an adult that has responsibilities and other things to play so 
yeah, it's it's one of the things. Like every time that I do revisit this game, I find myself kind of, you know, a, a little let down for for myself that I never actually got around to do those things. And I think it um it's really interesting. I mean, if you go and look at like the alternate ways that a lot of these storylines can conclude, like because like the game is ultimately like very rewarding of you like going out and doing all these things, and also just like broadly finishing and getting like you know getting the hundred percent run. Um, because, like, you're, you're gonna get some, like, objectively worse versions of a lot of conclusions in this game if you haven't done and seen everything, uh, and that can be, you know, shit as minute as not seeing Yuna at the very beginning of the game when she's in her Moogle outfit in Luka, and stuff like, you know, the, the calm spheres, and it is, you know, a game that you really have to spend a lot of time in, and, you know, knowing the ins and outs of and knowing what move to make at every given, you know, moment in chapter and I just wish that like I had the time to actually have a full 100% completion playthrough of this game but yeah that that window is probably passed yeah yeah there there's something appealing about seeing some of the stuff that people can do in this game and and wanting to like hit the same level of completion and and mastery but there's also just I, I I think outside of one specific strat that i thought that was interesting to watch uh i just do not have the time of day to 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 finish this game in that way i did see so shout outs uh to some of the youtubers that do uh you know end games sort of final fantasy 10 2 content that uh and posted up because i did learn about one trick that you can do on a lot of enemies, uh, basically any enemy that, that can flinch. Uh, apparently, if you go all three girls on Thief Dress Sphere, you can just, like, basically endlessly juggle mm-hmm. an enemy uh, and, and never let them attack and just constantly flinch them and also build your chain up to uh, times 99 very easily mm-hmm. if you time the attacks right. Uh, it's very uh, interesting to watch some of those fights. I encourage folks to to look that up because it's kind of cool to, mm-hmm. to see people break that system in that way. But, um, yeah, there, there'll be things like via Perifico, uh, the, the beacon L stuff, the den of woe that, uh, we did not personally beat ourselves that, that we'll be talking about in that way. So that's just a heads up for the, the episode ahead, but let's start out with the place that we do want to go. Let's start out. Ken, with Bissade, where Lulu and Waka's baby has arrived. Lulu has had the child. We we touch down. Waka runs out to greet us when we get there, and it is a boy. Uh, we, we, we meet Lulu and the little guy over at the temple, and everyone's just fawning over the kid. It's great. Mm-hmm. It's fantastic. Uh, the... <laughs> Uh, the kid does have red hair, which is bright which red is fire hair. Like yeah, and Walker's like, oh, it's good that he doesn't look anything like me. And it's like that is your child. That is yeah. absolutely yeah. your baby. Um, and, and Riku, they Riku asks what his name is, and and there's a whole segment about Waka having trouble coming up with a name for the kid. Uh, he he apparently still has not decided. It's taking him a while. Uh, Lulu says the calm will end before Waka decides, <laughs> and you know we we kind of hit the 
we we hit kind of the the same beat that we've been hitting with the story over and over again, which is is Waka really ready to be a father and all that? Um, we can ask Lulu, you know, if Lulu's got a choice for for child's name and all that, and she's like, no, I want Waka to decide. I want Waka to do this. It's very. Can again we get we gotta voice some stuff? Here yeah, finally. I mean, That's been we're here. This, this is this is the time to talk about it because this is the end of their story, and yeah. the agency left Lulu's body as soon as the child entered it. the The whole Besaid thing has been incredibly Waka focused. Mm-hmm. Every just about every time we do anything related to Besaid, it has been in the context of. Waka, you know, mm-hmm. Waka's run off to the cave because he's having a tough moment, you know, thinking about the future. Waka's having some trouble. Waka ran into the temple to try and kill all the fiends. Uh, Waka's and, beefing with Beklum. Yeah, yeah. And Lulu has basically one moment with Yuna uh, through the calm sphere. Mm-hmm. And even then, like it starts out as a very good moment between the two and and a, a nice warm moment and then suddenly spins into oh by the way waka and then waka mm-hmm. shows up <laughs> there was that moment like in the like the very the first chapter when we show lulu the sphere of shuyin and that was you know a moment where lulu like has her one time to be like the older sister and be like people are going to use you and your influence mm-hmm. and you yes. need to be aware of this and like you know that's like Mm-hmm. that's something that I guess I would have liked to have seen more of as we come to Besaid because like a lot happens like between the times that we come to and from Besaid and like I would have loved like more scenes of Unit and to like sitting down with Lulu and talking about things and like I don't like I think you know I, we brought it up before I think a lot of the interviews and discussions about why it was Payne and not Lulu in the party was a lot of it was they didn't want Unit to have this like older sister figure that she was constantly relying on but I think there's a difference between like constantly relying on someone and simply like confiding in someone that you trust and you know, seeking some level of advice, even if you're not necessarily looking for, to them for, like, orders or something like that. Yeah. It's... We we do get a few moments, but it is this thing where it's... Lulu was such an, an important character. I mean, Lulu was one of your party members in mm-hmm. Final Fantasy X, and suddenly uh, this is one of the party members who... Uh, just kind of disappears into the background and Mm. i I would normally say you know oh that's because a lot of these areas uh specifically revolve around one one character you know when we get to kilika we're going to be talking a lot about donna and bartello when we get to luca that's talking about shalinda but besaid has two characters because we also have the beklum stuff here Mm. that we work with and i like the beklum stuff to be fair i i think the beklum stuff is good but even then the beklum stuff revolves around waka right <laughs> and I, I i don't know i i just it's not that i don't like waka i just think that everything in besaid revolves so tightly around this one dude mm-hmm. that uh it ends up feeling to its own detriment that it does so that that all yeah. the characters on this island end up revolving around waka's needs and wants and yeah, it annoys and, me. <laughs> and, like, compare that to, like, the gag of that stuff with Kamari. Like, I feel like, you know, Kamari is, like, the central character of that area, but also, like, Garrick and Leon and Aid, like, all these characters, like, mm-hmm. they have things 
that feed into Kamari's story, you know, in some way, but, like, there's, like, a lot of agency on their part, and, like, you get a lot of time sitting with their motivations and how they feel about things, where Lulu exactly. is, like, yeah. this person who strictly facilitates what Walk is dealing with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so we, we head to the beach, too, to, to go find Beckham. We find out that Beckham is head back to headquarters. The Youth League is, is looking to reorganize, and so they're redeploying him somewhere else. Uh, he lets us know, hey, you know, here's this war buddy sphere, um, you know, tell Waka, whatever. And uh, the Aurochs are, are kind of you know, dicking around nearby with a blitz ball, and it rolls over and hits Beklum, uh, and and he just kind of stops. And, you know, it's that moment of like, ooh. Mm. He turns around and does this, like, sphere shot, jack shot Mm-hmm. blast of a blitz ball and and takes keepa the f out <laughs> and, and he's just like practice harder and leaves <laughs> that was such a good moment like yeah you know what we've been dealing with you know under the surface like he's got this, he, like there's like a beef between him and waka but it's because like there's a deeper thing that we've actually found out through a comfier conversation which put a pin in all that because like I, we i think this is actually like a good chapter or episode as they call it to discuss like the ways that like, the conclusions to stories can be very, very different if you miss out on, like, even the smallest thing. Mm-hmm. But, you know, a lot of Becklum has, like, he's been a very straight-laced person. Like, you know, we assume just, like, no fun allowed kind of guy. And then he just, like, has pro blitzball move that, I don't know, it was just, like, it was the right kind of surprising, but also, like, kind of made sense when it finally happened. I was like, oh, this man, like, respected, you know, the people that he did. And so you'd expect him to have, like, some sort of, like, really deep personal connection to the things that these people excelled at that he's just never really shown because he's been, you know, this person, you know, that's supposed to be, like I, like I said, straight-laced representative of, like, the hard-ass side of the Youth League. And so it's just, like, this really nice kind of, like, bow to his story at the end. To be like, oh, no, he, 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 he has fun when he, when he feels it's appropriate. And, yeah, I just really like that moment. And even, like, even now I'd forgotten about it after having played it. You know, fairly recently. I forgot, like, oh, right, he just knocks the dude out with Blitzball. And that mm-hmm. was very nice. Yeah, and then following up with just saying, like, hey, practice harder. Mm-hmm. Like, kind of being like, I know I, I have y'all's best interests in heart, even if I'm, like, a hard ass on y'all. Like, mm-hmm. you can be better if you stop just, you know, playing around all the time. Uh, I liked it. And so mm-hmm. we do, uh, we get the sphere... And uh, we take the sphere back to to, to view it, to share it. Um, uh, it's of Ch- Chapu, and in this in this sphere vision, we see that uh, he he admits that the sphere of their parents that Walk has been searching for does not exist. It was just a thing he made up in the moment. Uh, and we also see in the background Waka being annoyed and being like, I'm busy praying. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you've got time to make a sphere, you've got time to pray to yep. Yevin. Um, but then uh, Chapu ends it on a surprisingly interesting and like deep note, which was uh, he says he didn't need Waka to be his parent during this time. He just needed him to be his brother. Mm-hmm. And I, I was like, dang, that's... Mm-hmm. 
of, of all the things that that this could have ended on um you know it could have just been like oh chapu's like oh yeah i was i was always really grateful to you big little bro little bro right no big bro big bro yeah big bro yeah yeah i always forget the the age difference between the two um you know it's i, I always appreciate you instead he's like hey I needed you to be something else for me mm-hmm. and you, you were insistent on being this thing. And that's like, that's not a neat bow. That's not like a, Oh, a happy tie off. That's like, mm-hmm. Oh, that they had a complicated relationship and they never mm-hmm. really got to fully settle it because of sin and mm-hmm. because of the way this world worked. And, right. uh, it, it leaves their story on a very, complicated note mm-hmm. but one that i think ends up making for an interesting resolution for what waka is going through right at the same time i i liked it a lot i, I don't know yeah. how you felt but yeah i did because like, i mean that was even what he was talking about in chapter one he's like i've never had like so, cause, so like the idea is like he's never had a uh, sort of thing to look to as an example of like how to be a parent because like their parents are mm-hmm. so young and they don't remember that much about him so like he's kind of been just kind of flying by the seat of his pants when he's trying to, like, relate to most people, like, especially his family. And so I think, you know, with Chapu specifically, it was like, you did not need to be my, our parents. I needed you to be you. And I think that is, you know, it's kind of like, it's a messy correlation, but, like, you can see how he would take that in, when it comes to parenthood. Like, you don't need to be aspiring to be some sort of lofty ideal of what a father is. Like, just be yourself and, you know, the rest of it will just kind of come more naturally. Like, you know... Mm-hmm. I think it's you, you becoming a father is not you becoming a new person. It's becoming an extension of you in just a different context. And that's especially interesting because, I mean, I don't, I mean, I guess you wouldn't have seen it. And, but there's also another way that this entire story can kind of go down that ultimately, like, has, I think, the, the same lesson at the end is that if you don't get, if you don't have that calm fear conversation with Beckham where he admits that, like, he knew Shepu and that's why he was disappointed in Waka when he got here this conversation goes a different way because you don't get the war buddies fear. And then Riku talks about the scene in Final Fantasy X where Kamari was like, Riku should stay Riku. Uh, and mm. when she was, I think she was comparing herself to Lulu and kind of like, that's, you know, the same idea is like, don't aspire to be other people when be a, just a version of yourself that complements you know, the people around you. And I just thought that was like an interesting thing because like what also happens is, Riku and Waka have this moment, and Waka thanks her in Albed, and hmm. yeah, and so a thing that happens later, I guess. Yeah, but the weird thing is, if you get that version of the scene, Waka never comes up with a name for the baby. He's still thinking what? about it by the end. Yeah, and that's and, 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 and considering <laughs> what the baby's name is going to be, like I feel like those should almost be inversed in some way. But that is an example of like. If you do not 100% every single one of these sections, you are going to get a different, maybe just like less less clean, less definitive ending for a lot of these things. And I think that's where, you know, there is that interesting sort of thing about like, you know, the second playthrough, I'm going to get this right that time and then see how this was supposed to go, like, how this was supposed to uh, pan out. Um, and I feel like this is, you know, that's a good example of like how the systems are in this game. But I think like textually that it seems weirder considering the name that the baby is going to be given for him to not have an idea given the way this conversation happens with Riku. But yeah, it's just a very interesting example of how 
the systems in this game work to bring different conclusions depending on what you actually did in the game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if, if we if we do as we have done, uh, if we get the war sphere, uh, the war buddy sphere, uh, we we head back to town and have a big celebration uh, around a fire. Basically, have a big old camp out and all that. Uh, and Waka announces that the baby's name is Vidina, and it is not explicitly stated in our version of events, but uh, it, it's not even shown on the screen as that being an Albed word, but it is the Albed word for future, mm-hmm. uh, which is very sweet. It's a mm-hmm. sweet thing to do. Also a surprise, given, wait, Waka learned Albed. Mm. <laughs> yeah. I would have liked that to, that might have been a more interesting route to take for his own personal development that wouldn't then take an entire island's worth of emotional <laughs> involvement to, to get him there. Mm. They say it uh, takes a village to name a baby. <laughs> takes a village to therapize a man. <laughs> uh, and then we, we have a scene uh, at the end that I actually thought was kind of sweet of, of Waka and Lulu by the campfire uh, where they're talking and and she's like, oh, I had faith in you and stuff mm-hmm. like that. It is still very Waka-centered, but right. it was it was at least the two of them kind of together and, mm-hmm. and talking about the future. Uh, it's the straight up, I think, first time we have seen these two be romantic at right. all. Like, ever. Yeah. <laughs> um which is another thing it's like for 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 a pair of people that are that are literally having a child together we never see them be even remotely close to each other they Mm -hmm. they are kind of just hanging out around each other and so Mm -hmm. it was nice to actually see them be together in a scene uh and there's a very funny you know they're your trio are like, oh, they're off in their own little world. Let's mm-hmm. let's sneak out and not disturb them. And right. uh, one thing I do want to make note of as we get the episode complete here is that as Yuna's leaving, she kind of stops and pauses and turns around towards Besaid and and the temple and all that, and does like this bow and then mm-hmm. leaves. And I don't know how intentional that's supposed to be, but it reminded me just a lot of. Final Fantasy X Yuna and the way that she left a lot of those towns mm-hmm. as if she was seeing them for the last time and all that. And it, it it stirred up some some old emotions from me yeah. from Final Fantasy X that I was like, oh, you know, this this whole game has kind of been about the future and, and the potential mm-hmm. of what's coming. But there is also, we're, we're about to jump down a giant hole where Vega right. Gun is. And so there was a part of me when I saw that and I was like, it, what's going through Yuna's head at this mm-hmm. point is, is Yuna thinking, am I going to come back from this one? Am right. I looking at these places for the last time again? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I think, interesting like, note. yeah, I think chapter five specifically, there's a lot of time taken with Yuna having to kind of like consider all possibilities of what the future is. And that does include like, you know, wondering if she's going to come back, but I also think that it plays into like having to like finally sit with, the idea that she might not find Titus at the end of this as, mm-hmm. you know, after all the reveals that have happened. But also considering, like, what do I do if I do come back? Like, what do, what do I do if, you know, we you know we, we beat Vagnagon and we're all set on that front? What does my role in this world look like? And so, like, I think, like, depending on where we're going, there's just a lot of time that Yuna takes to consider possibilities, both good and bad. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um... We'll, we'll we'll touch more on that in in a later 
in a later area, but it was an interesting way to start this whole episode completion quest off, because uh, now we had to kill a guy. And here we have people shouting at the gates. They want to be let through to the woods. You know, basically the, the whole conflict that has existed in Kilika this entire time is that you have the Youth League in town and New Yevon at the temple, and there have been gates sealed off between the two. It is very much uh, the, the physical representation of the broader division that's happening in the world outside. Uh, Kilika has it happening right there, right at home with uh, two groups of people that are now just frustrated. They just want to be with their friends and family again. They're getting sick of all this faction war stuff. They're getting sick of all that. They listen to Yuna's song. <laughs> they mm. heard, they heard the the concert. Um, even Donna points it out. It was like you did listen to the song, didn't you? Because mm. uh, Donna ends up kind of taking charge finally and and leading everyone through the gate towards the temple. Um, and so at the temple, everyone's getting reunited. Everyone's seeing their friends and family. Uh, and loved ones again but then obviously bartello shows up and and donna and bartello become the focus because Mm -hmm. uh it's it's donna and bartello so donna starts to roll through the practiced lines that she had from (laughs) from our chapter four where uh she starts going with the didn't i say you were my guardian didn't i say and then bartello straight up interrupts her he's like i'm so sorry I'm so sorry, Donna. <laughs> <laughs> um, it is just the sweetest interaction between the two where Donna's clearly both shocked and embarrassed, but also kind of, you know, taken aback. She did not expect to see this kind of emotion and, and Bartello's just pouring his heart out. And he's like, you know, I'll never let something like this come between us again. I, I, I am with you, and, and Donna's like, you'll be making this up to me for the rest of your life. And <laughs> and everyone everyone celebrates, and then Donna's like, oh, Bartello, we're leaving, and does the pose. <laughs> and, uh, everybody lets a bunch of balloons go, and they all celebrate. It, it, very short episode, very quick, you mm-hmm. know, stop in, you know, check it out, uh, you know, hit some treasure chests on the way. There's cactar and stuff you can get here, but it's really just about putting a bow on these mm-hmm. two's relationship. And I like that. Mm-hmm. I thought this was a very sweet little episode, very nice way to tie off the Donna Bartello thing. Mm-hmm. I can't even imagine what the bad ending of this looks like. It's got to be just depressing because... Yeah, I mean, it's like... The implication is that, like, she still ultimately is, like, trying to forgive him and he's trying to, like, make up for it. But, like... uh they they don't speak at, at on the stairs and all that he really gets the signals that there is some sort of like door being opened to a conversation and so she blows up one of the balloons and just kind of loads it up the staircase and so he like you know jumps down and but you go back to Kilika after this and he's like sitting outside their their home being like I'm gonna sit here until Donna forgives me and you mm. know you know leaving on the note that they might at one point you know make things up but. You don't get that clean resolution. Mm. It's it's nice. We get to finally see mm. Don and Bertello together. Again, another couple that we get to finally see be together at the mm-hmm. end and be happy, which at this point has got to be having Yuna feel yeah. a certain way. <laughs> Poor Yuna. Uh, so let's, let's look into that. Let's pick that apart and analyze that in Luca. 
where where blitzball season has begun. <laughs> I'm sure Ken's got blitzball fever. Ken cannot wait to play some blitzball. Uh, the Aurochs are too busy, you know, raising Waka and Lulu's child. <laughs> so uh, they've decided that the Gold Wings are going to take their place in the Blitzball season. And Ken just spent hours here, y'all. I, mm-hmm. I can't even begin to tell you. Ken yeah, just... I actually didn't play anything else that we're talking about today. I've played Blitzball the entire time. Yeah. Uh, just... By which I mean I did not touch it. So I, I will also tell you that I did not touch Blitzball this time around because I, I looked up and there's no reason to do so. It's not completion percentage or anything. It's mm-hmm. basically just in there. It's also different. Like, you don't control... Yes characters and that's what i was gonna ask i read somewhere that you do not control the team in this game you just control your own character and that seems like a bad choice <laughs> seems like the wrong choice for blitzball <laughs> yeah it's it i don't know it, feel, it feels like it's kind of bolted on at the end to be honest that's that's a shame because you know whether you liked blitzball or didn't like blitzball i think it is still a very deep part of final fantasy 10 that they did a good job of weaving throughout the game and having different characters that you could recruit and, and building in systems and seasons and, and training and things and making it a very complex mini game that was, you know, a bit above and beyond in the way that you would expect of, uh, of Final Fantasy mini games, things like Tetra Master and stuff like that, where you want that sort of depth to them over time. And, uh, it's a bummer that Blitzball ends up being kind of the tacked on thing here. And also mm-hmm. that like sphere break has basically disappeared when sphere break was probably the more like interesting and complex mini game that they had here. There's mm-hmm. just a lot of mini games that are all kind of time related in this game and are also, I, I, I don't know, I guess we're finally like litigating the, the mini game aspect of this game, but, uh, I didn't feel like a lot of them ever really landed for me. Sphere Break was probably the most interesting of all them, but like the Cactar one that we were doing was. Just I like the Gunner's Gauntlet. Uh, Gunner's Gauntlet was interesting. I don't know that it ever like fully landed for me, uh, just because it felt kind of awkward uh, the way that you ended up having to run up high scores on it, but. It was probably the more interesting of all of them because of the way it felt like a Resident Evil game, basically. Mm. <laughs> uh, it 10-2 just ends up feeling like a lot of mini games and one of those wide ocean, shallow pond sort of mm. situations where all of them are, uh, there's a lot to do, but none of them have a lot going on versus 10 where you had... There are other minigames on the side. And to be fair, both 10 and 10 have a fairly deep monster training, monster arena stuff that you can get into for endgame reasons. But we didn't really mess with that stuff. We'll, we'll talk about it when we get to probably Via Purifico, I think is where a good place to talk about it. Um, but I, I don't know. Just nothing. It, it's a bummer to me that Blitzball ends up being a lesser version of itself in this because I think mm-hmm. that is reflective of how... Uh, not as deep the mini games intend to are. Uh, anyways, we head to a spot, the spot where Titus and Yuna laughed, where the laugh happened, mm. and Yuna whistles. Uh, says she's been practicing. We have we've seen her practice many times. We've seen her do the whistle 
many different places. We'll we'll keep seeing her do the whistle uh, throughout this chapter, uh, and we get a flashback, uh, and Yuna reflects that everywhere she goes, Spear is full of places tied to her memories and memories of that journey and memories of Titus, and then all of a sudden a Moogle shows up uh, that she just needs to start chasing because she starts seeing flashbacks of the story of Final Fantasy X as she goes. And it's, this is sort of a weird thing where she can see it, but Riku and Pain can't. Mm-hmm. And so it's you know very heavily implied that this is very much like something's happening with Yuna and and she's seeing things and, and reaching out to things that other people cannot see. And it's it's bringing up that sort of spirit stuff like the far plane that we dealt with mm-hmm. uh, where we whistled in the far plane. Um, now, at least, we're starting to see titus we're actually starting to see the character uh Mm -hmm. because i think this is the first time in ten two that we have seen his character's avatar on screen right (laughs) we've seen the shadowy figure as you note uh but even when we've seen quote unquote him it's been shuyin the whole time right this is the first time we've seen titus is in these flashbacks as we chase this moogle yeah uh and as we chase yeah. it across Luca, uh, we finally get to a final thing. Uh, we, we see a bunch of scenes between Titus and Yuna, and we finally get a, a final one where she reflects, these are our memories, yours and mine, but I don't think I'm ready to let them be memories yet. Uh, mm. So yeah, it's yeah. it's it's a lot. We, we can talk about sort of the, the conversation that they have after this as well, uh, which is, I, I think, very good um, and a nice like conversation for this trio to have uh about their own relationship as well as obviously their relationships with characters outside the trio but uh i liked finally having this recognition of titus mm. and of 10 and just fully you know connecting the thread in in a way that that felt very rewarding as somebody mm. who's played final fantasy 10 a lot because it was fun to go back through luca and follow the whole gang's journey as mm-hmm. you know you're basically going in reverse order through right. the things that you didn't intend i like that a lot yeah and like it was like i was saying earlier like i feel like you're just having to kind of deal with possibilities now and because I, I think there are you know mm-hmm. segments mm-hmm. of this chapter that almost feel like you know starting to like actually have to deal with the stages of grief because she's having to mm-hmm. reconcile that you know the thing that she has been chasing might not be something that's at the end of this and, you know, cause, so I think it's interesting to, like, see her kind of, like, go back and forth with how she's feeling about this, because there are certain points where she feels like she's maybe being a little bit more accepting of, like, what the future might hold, but then there's part, like, here where she's like, I don't want these to be memories yet, and there's going to be a point later where she kind of basically reiterates that, and when we go to another place that holds, like, a very special memory for her. Yeah, so, like, that was, you know, like you said, it was also just, like, a good time to, like, finally see Titus on screen, because... He's been kind of an enigmatic figure throughout this entire game, and I think that you know, I, I think there was some weight to that as well. That that felt that felt calculated to me that they weren't like constantly showing flashbacks or showing Titus as we remember him um, up until this point where you just having to like really you know sit down and confront these things. I think it can be an out of sight, out of mind thing if you don't have to like sit and ponder the specifics of what you're trying to do as long as you're still trying to pursue that and. Yeah, so I, I did like this scene where, like, you know, you know, really just sat with her memories for a bit. And it wasn't, you know, in some framing of, like, 
palette swapping Titus and Chuyin and her and Lin into various scenes, but like actively like sitting down and thinking about someone who is no longer here and who might not be here by the time that you've, you know, finally when all is said and done. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like to, to your point that like, it is nice that this is not a scene that happens within the context of the larger plot within, you know, Oh, Titus and Yuna in relation to Shuyin and Len. No, this is just about Titus and Yuna. This is purely mm-hmm. about the journey that they've they had been on. Um, and Yuna tells them Moogle it's okay, and and Pain and Riku catch up and and ask what's going on. And Yuna's like, oh, it's just a dream. Never mind. Don't worry about it. And and Riku says, no, nah, it's not just that. It's a connection between you and someone else. And and Riku intimates that she felt like this about someone once. And Pain obviously follows that up and Riku's like oh we could trade secrets if you want <laughs> and Payne's like nah I think I already know <laughs> and, mm-hmm. uh on the ship Payne uh guesses that's probably Gipple um or, or is that your speculation here? that was my speculation that, but that was your speculation okay. yeah, the more like the, the more I went through the chapter I was like yeah 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 I, once again, I wish Riku had a little bit more development in this case mm-hmm. because I do, yeah, maybe it could be Gipple, but also, like, we've never really seen Riku interact with somebody in any sort of way, and there's barely Riku scenes to... It's, it's Gipple. I mean, I'd say they're, they're overtly flirty in this game. Well, maybe, but in the context of, yeah, Gipple is one of the characters, like, one of the boy characters that Riku talks to in this game <laughs> like again i don't know it, you maybe need to go rewatch some of the earlier themes in the first couple chapters because like that that read textually to me as flirting I, I i will look back at that but this is i'm still on team riku does not get enough spotlight well, sure. in this game the, those are those are not mutually exclusive feelings yeah um so you know kind of closes us off here with a little monologue about clinging to memories and that sometimes we can feel confused about that. It's okay to feel that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, this is like part one of a part two to me. And I feel like we'll pick this thread back up in the moon flow, which I think is kind of a very similar, uh, sequence to this one. You mean Makalania? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Makalania. Sorry. I get those mixed up. Um, in, in, in the woods, uh, mm-hmm. at a very specific place again one that that holds a lot of meaning for for Titus and Yuna and uh well we'll pick that thread back up there but now we head off to the Mian High Road because we've finished our investigation we have investigated the strange incidents on the Mian High Road and Reen gets this incredible uh, Hercule Poirot moment mm-hmm. of <laughs> gathering everyone together mm-hmm. and laying out all the threads and all the things that have happened and basically comes to the conclusion that Riku has been doing a bunch of chaos across mm-hmm. the high road and the scene again for, for a PS2 game where sometimes you know animations aren't always going to sync up well and, and things are going to, to have some difficulty clicking together the scene pulls off some good physical comedy in a way I was not expecting. Like, Riku falling on top of the Machina was funny, but Riku just absentmindedly running across the bridge and the hovercraft like dodging out of yeah. the way and crashing <laughs> <laughs> was very, very funny. Mm-hmm. Um, that that one got me pretty good. Um, and so we uh, 
we come to the conclusion that that Riku was was the culprit, and her sentence is trash duty on the high road. Uh, and for this. So interestingly, it does not have to be Riku for this to be a 100% completion. Uh, it can be, I think, a couple other characters. Because mm-hmm. I think there's like five different characters that you can end up as as yep. the guilty party. You know, there's like a chocobo eater. Uh, there's like some other NPCs that are in the area that can end up getting blamed for it. But obviously Riku is, as we learned, the true culprit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we get... By the way, I wanted to say a very, very, very good accessory for correctly ascertaining that. Um, one that removes the mana cost for spells cast. Uh, it's called Ragnarok. Uh, and also, fun fact, as I learned from a guide that I was reading while I was going through this, also removes the HP cost from Dark Knight abilities. <laughs> So you can just spam away on Dark Knight now. Happy birthday! Uh, so yeah, that's been on pain since I got it. Mm. But uh, yeah, I, I just I, I and this is something that I came to also realize in stuff that we're going to talk about this episode. But next, I was just like, this would be really cool if I still like actively was using magic dress fears, mm-hmm. and I'm just mm-hmm. not really spec that way anymore. So yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of a neat thing. Um, so that's that's the conclusion to the narrative story part of this. Now, there, this is one of the areas with a hidden dungeon. Uh, it does require sending some chocobos out and doing a, a lot of the hidden dungeons in this game involve the chocobo mini mm. game for some reason, uh, and I'm not wild about that because I think the chocobo mini game is also very weak uh, and annoying and frustrating to do. But you know. Uh, yeah, it's it's got a cool setup where you you blow up different walls to progress through it, and you eventually get to a tough fight at the end. But um, I don't know. It seemed neat, but also seemed like just a thing to do if you want more to do in this mm-hmm. game uh, versus anything else. Uh, yeah. Did not seem story relevant. Yeah, I would say it doesn't have like the narrative payoff of some of the other like hidden dungeons and mm-hmm. extra bosses and all that shit. So let's move right on to more more important, more interesting things, like the Mushroom Rock Road, where uh, we've, got, we've got a few things to talk about here. We've we got a few things. Um, we'll, we'll start... So I, I'm, I'm reading your notes now because I'm noticing that, that you have split this up. So you want to do kind of the main Mushroom Rocks Road stuff first, or you want to do... Uh, Den of Woe later. Uh, I'd say I'd save Den of Woe for for uh, a different for, time. For, yeah, gotcha. Okay, I'm seeing how you've broken this up now in your notes. So, uh, we'll we'll save that. We'll talk about Den of Woe next episode. It looks mm-hmm. like. Um, for now, we'll just talk about the Youth League. Uh, so we show up, and Alma and Lucille are here. Peppermint, Patty, and Marcy show up. <laughs> <laughs> and uh elma's like oh i love the concert it was great and lucille was saying this has been great you know we're, we're basically uh moving towards a truce with new yevin um every everything's going great nobody wants to like fight each other or go to war anymore but now we just all have excess energy you know everybody's kind of amped up and got nothing to do with it so uh she proposes a tournament finally finally a tournament arc <laughs> in, in final <laughs> fantasy 10 2 uh, and and we get to join in. Uh, so we, we go through basically a succession of fighting a bunch of enemies, a bunch of Youth League members all in a row. Uh, 
And first up is Yibel, who's just been asking to get that ass kicked mm. for for a while. Um, gotta be honest, most of these fights were pretty easy. Yeah, um, I was like, even even the Yibel one, like if he's basically just like another generic youth league uh-huh, troop. Uh-huh. Um, it's not until we get some of the later ones where like any of the strategy really starts to change. Yeah, and even then they just get challenging because they start doing a little bit more damage, and so suddenly where you could kind of go without a healer in the first few encounters, you'll kind of need somebody to be topping mm-hmm. everybody off. We get to Elma, and oh my god, who, for a game that has incredible audio design, I'm just going to say, like great music, I think the localization team did a great job as well on the, the English VO in particular, but we get to Elma... And Elma just shrieks every time she, has a she battle does battle cry. Something. It is scary what happens when when Elma shows up. The first time it happened, I thought somebody was being like attacked outside my door. <laughs> like, <laughs> I was I was concerned. I was worried. Um, yeah, I don't know what's going on there with that whole thing, but uh, she's just really into it. Yeah, yeah. What you what do you think of the Elma fight mechanically, Ken? Uh, it was at the point where, like, yeah, like these, uh, the, the the named enemies, like they do more damage, but also like she had like MP targeting abilities because like she, I I switched Riku over to White Mage because she had Mighty Guard or not so Mighty Guard on her and all her friends, and by the time that I switched to Riku to like just to spell them, uh, she was specifically targeting Riku's healing through MP targeting abilities, and mm-hmm. I was like that's that's cool, like that's, that's you know a, a good kind of way to shake things up near the end, but it was still beyond that a fairly easy fight yeah yeah i think the tougher fight that we have here the one that i actually lost against the first time was and almost lost against the second time uh is lucille uh lucille uh the the tournament ends we're the victors and Payne says there's still one person left to fight Mm. and lucille's like oh me then huh and and it's a 1v3 fight and lucille goes hard Mm -hmm. (laughs) lucille has a bunch of items so she has items so you cannot reflect this stuff back and they are all like lightning gem and Mm. fire gem so she can throw out a bunch of magic attacks that hit your whole party that cannot be reflected um she attacks very fast she can inflict the uh the doom countdown so three two one dead and uh just a bunch of really dangerous mechanics and also she moves very fast like she mm-hmm. does not have she's probably the fastest enemy we've seen since bear lie yeah and uh the first time i did this i basically got locked into what i like to call the death cycle which is one party member has fallen and i spend forever just mm-hmm. trying to get that party member back up and alive and healed and that ends up resulting in me losing everybody uh and so that was how i lost the first time and then the second time around, uh, two characters ended up dropping to the three, two, one. And Yuna, I kid you not, was on one of the countdown to wipe my whole party, goes in for one last attack, and brings Lucille down <laughs> with it. I could not believe what happened. I was, I was baffled. That was the closest fight I've had in this video game. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Lucille, final boss material... Uh, Lucille really bringing it home in a way that Bear Lie <laughs> did not. 
uh, Lucille needs to join the party. I think we need to recruit Lucille into the Gold Wings because, good lord, uh, not Elma though. Elma needs to stay at home and, and work on her inside voice. But, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I really liked Lucille fight. I, I don't know mm. if you had an easier time of it or not. Yeah, I did. I mean, it, I I don't really know what it, what because like what she is alone, and so I think that like if she had had you know, a group with her in the midst of all the things that she was doing. I might have had a tougher time, but yeah, it was pretty straightforward. Did you kind of go all out offense? Cause I think that was my, I think that was my mistake was I saw this as a boss enemy. And so kind of tried to set up my, mm-hmm. my offense a little bit. And I think this is a character that you just have to rush down that you just yeah, have to like I, beat with raw damage. Right. When I realized that she was using items instead of spells, I didn't even bother to switch Riku over to white mage and, you know, cast reflect or anything like that. So I did, did stick with alchemist and get, mm-hmm. like, kept it primarily offensive, uh, run her. That's the way to do it. That's the way to do it. Just got to rush her down. So everybody has a good time. They're all celebrating. We can head back to the headquarters now. Um, and we can, uh, talk about, you know, kind of what what the Youth League is and what it serves as, as a function. Because Lucille brings up that there are so many people who are happy that Sin is gone, but also Sin being gone took away kind of a unifying purpose for everybody. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now everyone's trying to figure that out. And Nuge was originally that thing that gave them all purpose in the wake of sin being gone, you know, the youth league gave them reason, but, uh, with Nuge gone, they've obviously all lost their way. They've been trying to figure stuff out. They got a little rowdy, wanted to start some wars and all that. Mm. Um, but Lucille being a very smart and, and forward thinking person is like, I don't want to become a force that destroys. I want to make things. Mm. And, uh, we want to make a future where, war does not exist and war is not a whole thing that we have to keep dealing with over and over again and it was it's very nice you know i i think lucille is an interesting character that we only get glimpses of throughout 10 and 10 2 but i like her character a lot i like the the trio as it were of clasco elma and lucille and Mm -hmm. while we don't really get great resolutions for the other two at least i didn't for clasco because i did not engage with the chocobo mini game Mm -hmm. whatsoever (laughs) and uh, Elma just kind of shrieks in the distance. <laughs> uh, but Lucille, I like Lucille. Lucille's a cool character. Mm-hmm. So it was nice to have that little cap off. Yeah. Especially, like, it's nice to see her coming to her own because, like, a lot of people in this game, when Nuge and Barrel disappear, like, the, the entire Spira just goes into chaos. And it's like they need leaders, and that's like they don't have to operate without them. And so it was nice to see her kind of, like, step up and like take that mantle and like she does say later like when we talk to her later she's like oh the only person who's like fit to be the maven of the youth league is nude but i was like give yourself a little credit I don't know, you're doing pretty all right now that was you know i i appreciate what you were saying up there and um mm-hmm. i think i did feel kind of some way like, and again we, we talked about this when nina was on about like the the sort of um framing like the progressive faction as like uh, violent and Again, I feel like that is something I just kind of got to talk because I feel like the dynamics of how that is in the real world is like the, the very specific thing that is missing here is the prejudice against of against marginalized people that mm-hmm. makes that 
you know, one-to-one comparison not really line up. Because again, like, and, you know, we've talked about it before, like, they don't do a whole lot of reckoning with Albred prejudice in this world in Tintu in terms of, like, because I mean, I, th- I think, like, you know, it's, it's almost like lofty, like a lofty ideal for people to kind of, like, okay, completely set their prejudice aside once, you know, they've been presented with new information. Um, but, you know, without that core pillar of, like, what makes the, you know, the progressive versus conservative conflict uh, so I think, a- a- as we experience it in the real world, I think without that, it kind of, you know, I, I am I am more, char- like, I have a charitable reading, I guess, in the-, the way that this is framed more so in this game than I would if it was something maybe even, you know, something now, like in 2022, if they were somebody who make a game that had, like, you know, the progressive faction being treated as, like, these very, like, these violent hooligans that are, you know, trying to, you know, disrupt the peace and, you know, frame it in some violence is never the answer to bullshit. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so, like, I, I felt a way about her speech, but, you know, I, I, I think in the context of Spira in a vacuum, I think it, it makes mm-hmm. sense and works for me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll talk more about the other stuff that happens here in the Den of Woe in the next episode uh, as, as part of our big finale wrap up but uh yeah that stuff is interesting too we'll get there for for now we head off to the moon flow where tobley is back at it making new shows you know the concert went great everybody wants to see a tobley show and uh he's got this shoe puff stage where musicians are performing and he asks you know if you wants to hop on up there and and help out with the show and of course we could say yeah you know tobley's been all right to us and yeah he's you know, he's clout chasing a little bit. You know, mm-hmm. it is what it is. But, you know, Tobley is, is getting stuff done. And so you'd think that we hop up here and we get maybe a little extra concert for all the work we put in. And no, nah, they just they just stand there. They yeah. just, they just stand vibing. there. And you can pan to different camera views. And that's about it. Um, I got to say, you know, this this partially makes sense to me in a world where the share button does exist but on the ps2 weird weird thing to Mm. just have like you know the intent is obviously to look at how cool the scene is and see it from different angles and look at these Mm. characters but you know kind of a a a figure viewer which is Mm. not you know an unpopular thing to have in video games um but First of all, it's weird to just have it here, like just have it hanging out. But also, it is, it did make me realize that this stuff existed before the share button. But now right. with the share button, obviously, like you can take screenshots super easily, and so you'd think that would be like the main reason is to have these cool screenshots of these characters or whatever. But um, yeah, I was kind of bummed there wasn't a concert here. Yeah, uh, I also, I mean, you know, we did just get like a concert. Like that, that was kind of my thing. This felt like a epilogue to Tobley's stuff where the stuff in chapter four was like the actual like conclusion to his stuff I think mm-hmm. yeah yeah we just kind of end up doing that and then Tobley's like thanks you know we just we love bringing people together you know I'm happy we get to keep doing it and I'm asking for your help again in advance and you know mm-hmm. Payne's obviously super excited about that thrilled <laughs> uh elated as it were and uh that that's the end of that so you know that's Tobley a character who is ultimately kind of the comedic mm-hmm. uh, side character in Ten Two, but I think ultimately is is pretty fun. Yeah. Uh, let's head to Guado Salon now, where we get a very interesting 
segment, I think. Mm. Uh, we arrive in town, and the musicians from the Makalania Woods are here. Uh, they're they're playing they're playing music. Uh, they are not despairing in the woods anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, more importantly, the Guado are here. The Guado are back in Guado Salam. And Tremel comes up to us and says, hey, you know, we we were in a bad place. We, we were down. We were out. We were all kind of wandering around in the woods ready to die. And uh, the musical friends that we made, the musicians, really uh, gave us something to live for. And mm. it kind of inspired all of us to come back to Guado Salam and now none of us are going to disappear with the forest you know we're all going to be here and we're all going to try and build something new which again uh, put a pin in that we'll, we'll put a pin in that we'll talk about that in in the Makalania section but mm. um, we, we we talk to him and you know he's aware that the Ronso aren't happy about what happened and he's not you know if they showed up he's not going to hide he's like we want to talk and if they want my life, you know, I'd give it willingly. Uh, but, you know, it's like, that's not what the Ronso want either. Like, that's just one very militant faction of the Ronso. And don't worry, we're going to deal with that when we get mm. to Mount Gagasset. <laughs> but um, Tremel points out that the Guado need a new leader. But obviously he feels unfit for the task because of the way that he allowed Jiskel and especially Seymour to rise to power and enabled all the things that they did. Um, but the musicians point out that like, Hey, if you, you know, you, you've been doing good and, mm-hmm. and you've, you've saved your people once already. And if you get your stuff together, you, you can continue to be that leader for people. And, uh, Tramel kind of resolves to be a better person and a better leader for his people. And the musicians resolve to stay and help him, you know, keep his morale up and all that. And I thought that was a very nice, for for characters that have been doom and gloom for the mm-hmm. entirety of Ten Two, like seeing, I, I did not expect Tremel to be a character that I was happy to see like get his uh, redemption arc, mm-hmm. uh, especially after Ten and and the way he treats Yuna and the party in Ten. But uh, it was really nice to see a character both completely acknowledge the ways in which they have wronged other mm. people and be ready to answer for that when the time comes right. but also resolve to do good with the life they have left um right. like like that was a really nice thing to see and again you were talking about lucille and and how uh a lot of spira kind of washes over the bad things they've done in the past uh here we have a character who is acknowledging all the mm. bad he's done and right. is willing to make a recompense in whatever way that is. And sometimes that doesn't mean martyring himself mm-hmm. to make somebody else feel better. Sometimes it does mean doing the hard work of making sure his people can endure and making sure his people endure in a way that won't perpetuate the hate that right. caused problems in the first place. And I think that's really a nice way to leave Tramel's story off yeah. uh, that I liked a lot. I like that it doesn't like let him off the hook, but also like gives him mm-hmm. somewhere to go and mm-hmm. some something to do with his life instead of like wasting away in the woods. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, we also get the answer to the greatest mystery in this game, Ken. The greatest mystery in Final Fantasy X. To the hell's behind that door in Guado Salam? <laughs> uh, we we find out we we can go to this room after we have done all those conversations and stuff, 
and Tremel is there and he's like, oh yeah, this was like a storage area. This is basically like the storage locker mm-hmm. for the Quado. <laughs> and uh, he says, hey, you know, I'll, I'll open it up and you can take whatever you want. Uh, you know, our relics are in there. You might find something that'll help you out on your quest. And she's obviously hesitant at first, you know, unlike Laura Croft, she is not eager to just <laughs> grab cultural relics out from underneath the people. But uh, he's like, no, no, no. Like the, the Guado would be happy to help you build a new future. Like we, we have seen bad happen and we would be happy to be a part of the new future that you build rather than a bad memory on the old mm. past. Uh, and I, again, like a really nice way to leave that whole storyline off. So we go in there. There's some really nice equipment that we can get out of some chests. And uh, a, a woman is also in there, which then begs the question, if this door has been locked the whole time, has she just been hanging out in there? <laughs> like, what's the situation? But <laughs> um, apparently other people good at getting through locked doors lean and aid because uh, the woman mentions that she had heard about us from Leon and aid mm. and gives us a garment grid. Uh, and says that Leon and Aid have been uh, traveling around and meeting a lot of people and, mm-hmm. and really just unifying people as they go. And uh, she even mentions wanting to go to Mount Gagazet and meet some more of the Ronso and even Kamari after all this. Uh, so put a, put a pin in that. Uh, but yeah, this is kind of a nice... It's a nice thing. It's reflective of if you end up meeting Leon and Aid in one of the areas and telling them to go somewhere else. Uh, this is how you get that scene. Uh, mm-hmm. Otherwise, they don't go on their grand Spira right. adventure. Uh, and I thought that was nice. I thought that's a nice reflection of encouraging those two. And I really think it 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 sets the story out to be brought home later on. Mm-hmm. And we'll get to that yep. in Mount Gagazet. But also, Barrelized Sphere is in here. Don't know why. It's just in here. For some reason. <laughs> it's... We are in the end game, and this is one of those situations where I didn't mention it in Kilika, but you can go through Kilika Temple again. Like, you can go into the Cloyster of Trials and go, like, pick an item up off the ground in there, uh, in a chest that, that is one of the. There are a bunch of items in this section of the game that'll give you the break limit on your, uh, uh special dress spheres. Mm-hmm. So, the, the ones that each of the girls has. Uh, you can get items that allow them to break the damage limit and break the HP limit as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you just go and find these in random places. And there's also other key items that you just kind of find in places. I did not. I should have brought this up. On the me and high road, there's an item that you can only get if you are on a chocobo. Let, let me run you through this. You have to be on a chocobo and you go to a spot where there's a chocobo feather on the northern part of the Mian High Road. Kind of near that if you're if you're walking away from Rin's travel agency, there's kind of that U-turn where there's a, mm-hmm. a, a machina hanging out on a pillar by itself and there's a U-turn around it, you know what I'm talking about? Mm-hmm. Uh you go to the top part of that U-turn and if you look, you can barely tell that the Chocobo feather is there on the ground because it's hidden by a bunch of foliage and stuff. And you have to stand there. It's not one of the ones where you just interact with it and then get the little hop if you're on a Chocobo. You got to stand there on the chocobo and wait. And then a dialogue prompt will pop up and it'll be like three different options and they'll all be different versions of go where? Go? Where we're going. Mm-hmm. And you got to pick the right one and it takes you to a hidden treasure chest that gives you some items. You then have to leave the area, come back on the chocobo, 
and stand in the same spot where there is no longer a chocobo feather, no longer a marking there, and wait even longer, and then the same prompt will pop up and you get the opportunity to pick up another thing, and that's how you get one of the items. I think it's one of the break limit items for uh, pain stress fear, I wanna say is down there. Uh, I only did this because the guide we were using mentioned it, and even then, using a guide that told me where it was, I still took a while to find it. I don't know how anyone finds this naturally in a video right. game. It is batshit insane. <laughs> so <laughs> weird, weird shit in the end of this game for getting some of the the end game items. <laughs> uh, no. Some of it just kind of seems arbitrary, and that's mm-hmm, mm-hmm. yeah. I don't know. It, it, it's a weird bolting on some of these things and wherever, like whatever corners of the game they can find to do it. Ah. Mm-hmm. Uh. Let's go to the Thunder Plains. Uh, so it turns out that concerts aren't always good for nature, Ken, because mm. while we put on a great concert, it ended up attracting a bunch of fiends, uh, Ryoses in particular, to eat the lightning at all the rods. And so we got to run from rod to rod, beating up a Rios, uh, which means, you know, there are about nine of them, I think. So there's a very high chance that you will fight an oversold version of it at one point. Uh, and it's I, it's just a lot of walking and fighting. I, I felt like I got into a groove here. And, and it almost felt like mandated grind time. Like the mm-hmm. game basically saying, hey, you should probably gain some levels right now. <laughs> you should be able to beat yep. this. Or the end game is going to be very difficult for you. Uh but we we take out all nine of them across the Thunder Plains, and we're like, oh, there's something's still going wrong. Something's up. And we see that there's a uh, a thing over by the tower, and we can go check it out when we want to. So we know that that's probably a big old boss fight. And it is, which is, it's a Humbaba, <laughs> <laughs> which is a great name, but it's really just a behemoth. Uh, yeah, this was not a hard fight it casts mighty guard so you got to dispel you know if you want to do some actual damage against it uh and really we just you know i threw a dispel tonic as as riku with with alchemist i gotta admit i'm barely ever switching over to white mage at this point uh i even have it set up so i start on alchemist and swap into white mage and it passes over a garment grid thing I have that makes it so white mage cast times are lower. So I can literally just cast shell and protect immediately. Like it it does not have any charge time on either spell and then swap back to alchemist. Um, And, and that's basically what I do for boss fights. Otherwise Riku pretty much stays on alchemist. Uh, Yeah. So yeah, this, this was a pretty, it's a pretty straightforward fight, and I really only made it difficult for myself because I wanted to try and get it to reflect Mighty Guard off itself onto mm. me with uh, Yuna on Gun Mage so I could finally learn Mighty Guard so I didn't have to keep doing that with Riku, and that ended up almost wiping me by accident. So uh, <laughs> I just I revived everyone back up and, and, and killed it, and it was pretty straightforward. It was a pretty easy boss fight, all things considered. Mm. Let's, uh, let's talk about the good boss fight. In, in this in this section because I think there's a better boss fight here it's one that we discover because there's a hole there's another hole Ken mm. holes all over Spira <laughs> and uh, 
We're like, oh, we should probably investigate this. And Riku is obviously not happy about that. But we head into just kind of a giant cave. Mm -hmm. I'm going to be completely honest. This is the most apparent that the game has been about. It is tacking some extra right. sections onto pieces of this game. Because this is just a hallway. Yeah. <laughs> they, like, they, it, it kind of works in that, like it feels like it's deliberately trying to obfuscate where you're supposed to be on the mini-map because, like, you'll have to walk through, like, a, a long-ass hallway before you get to, you know, where you turn to, like, go to a different section of the area. But because the mini-map is as small as it is and you have so much distance between one point and another, it's not always 100% clear which which hallway you need to go down. And, you know, there might be things at the end, so, like, there's, like, it's rewarding in that way to go the wrong way sometimes, but just, like... That was at least, I, I wouldn't call it necessarily interesting design, but it was just like a design thing that I noticed that seemed to be like the overall intention and how they actually set up the, the actual area, the map. Yeah, I think so the dungeon that this is, and I looked up what the kind of broader setup for it is, and it is a conceptually interesting dungeon where you, it, it uses randomized seeds, basically, so you do have to like do write things down and you can't just follow a guide for I mean, you can follow a guide to get to the answer but you can't just punch numbers in and stuff mm. and it, it is a cool conceptually interesting dungeon it just also is not a pretty dungeon to look at mm. <laughs> yeah. um so we we work our way through um we we get to the end and we can talk about i i am interested reading over your notes in some of this battle stuff but we can talk about that uh when we get to the boss i think uh so we we get to the end of this long long hallway and we find sid just messed up and Sid's like hey how's it going what's up <laughs> me no nah, i'm not <laughs> injured and then he tries to get up and can't get up and so riku's like mad at him like jesus god you're embarrassing mm. me here uh, and Yuna and Pain are joking about who's going to have to carry him and all that. Instead, Sid's like, how about this? Make your old man proud scrap this thing. It opens a hole in the wall, and there's a giant tank there, which Sid, great, great fatherhood work here. Mm -hmm. Good job. <laughs> um, this is, I think, a conceptually very cool fight. Because the whole idea is throughout the game, we've had these enemies showing up in fights, these watchers mm -hmm. uh, that will kind of just watch us in fights and then maybe cast a spell or two. And then, you know, we eventually defeat them. And every time they're defeated, it says transmitting logs and then it blows up and disappears. Uh, guess where the logs were going mm -hmm. here to this tank? Um, so these, these watchers will block abilities that you have used on them previously. And I think that's really neat because you can end up in situations where you're having to suddenly deal with attacks that you have not had to use before, or you're having to drastically alter your strategy, or maybe you knew about this and you weren't using certain attacks when the watchers were in a fight. Like that's, it's a neat, cool thing. I like it a lot. It's really yeah. fun. I almost wish this was like a mandatory story boss and not just right. a thing off on the side because that's a cool like little mechanic to have throughout the game that suddenly comes to fruition later on. I, I like it a lot. Yeah. And I also like that it's not like overt in the way like that's something that you mm -hmm. kind of have to infer from mm -hmm. 
you know, your time in the game. And that's neat. Like, it, it's a very neat, like, honestly, like, for me, when I was playing it, like, it didn't really amount to much, but, like, the, the conceptually, that is still very interesting. Because, like, I don't think I, I mean, like, you know, you have to come across a lot of these, those watchers in random battles, but, like, I mm-hmm. don't think I came across as many in this playthrough as I definitely remember in others. So, like, it was still a pre- pretty straightforward fight. Like, just taking out the watchers that it had um, was kind of all I really needed to do to get to, you know, back to my, like, standard way of doing things. And mm-hmm. by that point, it was you know, pr- pretty straightforward. But, yeah, um, like, again, conceptually, like, if you've been... Especially, like, say, if you come to this later, if you've been doing a lot of the, you know, the, the end-game stuff that you have to, like, really grind for, and, like, maybe mm-hmm. you've come across mm-hmm. more of these and... You, know, you just kind of think of all the things that you might be dealing with when you actually get here, if you come here, like, say, a later point. And that's, you know, the point of a lot of some of these uh, in-game things. It's like a lot of them are growing through outside sources uh, in various things that you do in this game and can be a lot tougher depending on how, like, completionist you've been uh, up to this point. Yeah, yeah, and I think... I think it would have been cooler if it wasn't so easy to wipe these Watchers out either because I ended up... I hadn't used darkness on them at all. And darkness is the AOE dark Knight ability. And at this point I had, uh, I've got Ragnarok. So that means that I'm not taking health damage when I use darkness. And then also I had an item that gives uh, pain, like plus 50 strength or something like that. And so darkness just wiped all of them out immediately. <clears throat> and so it was like, Oh, okay. That mechanic's done with now, I guess. Uh, so I would have liked to have seen some sort of way that they could have either brought them back or I think, was it you, Yevon, at the end of 10 had the, the, the things, the pagodas that would eat spells and you had to keep taking them out. But every time you took them out, they came back with more health. Um, uh, that was Broska Thunalion. Broska. Okay. That was yeah. Broska. Um, yeah, that was, that was a cool mechanic and I would have liked to have seen something like that, you know, sort of. Yeah, you can take them out to get rid of the threat, but when they come back, they're going to do more. And so you need to also take that into account and and work with that. So it it was a cool one conceptually. And you had some stuff here about how you've kind of been changing your strategy uh, as you've played further into this game. You're kind of setting up an endgame strategy here. Yeah, it's something that you, you unlock as, as a Berserker like fairly late into the, the skill tree, as it were. Um is Howl, which will double your character's HP. Mm-hmm. And when it came to a lot of these in-game fights, you know, like, they have things that aren't even necessarily always, like, team wiping, but they would just do, like, a fuck ton of damage that might get you at least, like, very close to death. Um, with all that, taking that into consideration, I was using Howl at the start of a lot of fights with Pain as a Berserker because that would double her HP. And already, when I first started doing this, and what I got my notes, it would uh, reach about 7,000. But by the time that, you know, I got to the actual end game and I had gotten some of the high-level items that had increased her HP even more, um, it, was, you know, it was, well, like 9,999 without the, uh, the limit break. And so I was just kind of always using that as, like, a way to always ensure I had someone on the field for a lot of these really powerful team-wide attacks that mm. might, in a lot of cases, take out Yuna and or Riku. And so pain was always, like, a reliable thing that I was basically always going to have conscious on the field at all times. Because I think, like, once I kind of caught on to that, that strategy, I don't think I lost pain once. Except for, well, there was one one point in the game that we'll get to that I actually did lose and have to start over. But um, that was just something I kind of, like, was using as, like, you know, it was as natural to me as using, like, defensive magic was as white mage. Mm. Like, set up things 
for a fight that I knew was going to be longer. But on that note, though, I was having a lot of time with the Alchemist stuff, specifically trying to figure out what is the best time-wise in terms of, like, the actual ATV gauge mm-hmm. filling up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Because, like, there, you know, when you have the Alchemist, you usually have, like, three ways of doing, like, the exact same kind of healing. And, you know, that can be for mixing the stash or, like, using the actual items that you have on your person. Because, like, I didn't, you know, Mega Potions are, you know, not easy to come by right, in, in right. this game, but they're easy to mix to. And once mm-hmm. you get them, the stash, they're also easy that way. But if you have, like, an actual real Mega Potion and you've gotten uh, the items level up to the point where, like, using just, like, an item that you have can take, like, literally, like, one second, um, that, you know, time-wise just becomes, like, the more efficient thing to do. And mixing, I think, was a little bit faster than stash, but stash is just, yeah. you know less buttons that you have to press. So it's yeah. just like an interesting thing. And you know, this has been something we talked about throughout the season, like actions per second that you're doing mm-hmm. in this game. is always something that you have to consider. And having like all those options, I think is again, like we talked about a lot, like the alchemist is just like the most effective healer in this game because you constantly have all those options and that versatility to accomplish things. And, you know, not having the same like roadblocks that white mage would have with like shell or reflect kind of just undermining you as you're trying to accomplish other things. And I just thought that was, like, something that I was really noticing in this last chapter specifically. And I also kind of finally landed on what I think was my kind of, what I would say was, like, my default dress for for Yuna in this game, which was trainer. Because as you, that that dress fear has, like, different abilities for each uh, character. But for Yuna, she specifically kind of becomes, like, a damage dealing magic user because like a lot of her abilities they are they have like an elemental affinity or she at certain points gains like white mage abilities as well through it like she, she can cure with it and so i think in that way where like i had pain being my primary physical damage dealer riku being my support character yuna by the time that i'd gotten her through a lot of the the trainer uh, abilities she was just able to flex without me having to switch dress fears mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that was kind of what became like my in-game kind of loadout i guess was berserker alchemist trainer i did switch a couple times to gunner just because like, i'd like to trigger happy havoc or that that's the off again trigger happy to <laughs> uh to like stall out enemies uh attacks as mm-hmm. i was you know had like riku charging up for a mega potion or mm-hmm. pain charging up howl things like that um but yeah, trainer was something that I've always like enjoyed conceptually, but it's never been a mainstay in my lineup until this playthrough. And I was really actually kind of I was very happy with the party I had by the end on those mm-hmm. three dressers specifically. Yeah, yeah, I'm surprised personally by how much I'm liking the samurai on on Yuna. Uh, mm-hmm. I think I might end up changing it because I do have the item that lets you use any learned samurai abilities on other classes and I'm getting pretty deep into the samurai pool at this point and I think my next move might be to bump Yuna over to warrior but have her equipped with the thing that lets her still use samurai abilities mm-hmm. uh, because I like I like the idea of possibly being able to apply some of those warrior debuffs multiple times or uh, or to be applying all of them in quicker succession than I would be with just pain using all of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, I, I do feel like there's kind of an hourglass shape with the 
the the jobs in this game where you start out with so many options available and then you kind of like dial in and figure out where you want each of the girls to go and handle their stuff and and you kind of funnel into a party setup and then now that we're at the end game it feels like it goes back out and you can start to really use all these items that the game is giving you to Mm -hmm. uh say there are garment grids that let you mix and match and and use uh other class abilities or even use abilities that are just straight up you know i have one on somebody that lets them use haste or something like that there's a garment grid you can get in the end game that gives you access to ultima Mm. and i think that's interesting i think the ways that the game starts to let you really mix and match in cool ways uh really opens up again here in chapter five and to your point I think the biggest surprise for me is I I've always been, you know, healer to me is such a weird concept that I think it's hard to make good healers because in essence, a healer is always going to feel like a thing that is just refilling HP bars and topping people off. And it's hard to make that character feel different from what you would say, like your standard white mages. You look at games like say, Team Fortress 2, and and you come up with something like the Medic, or, you know, to, to use a more modern example, like Overwatch and Mercy, where mm. you, you, you try and give them a little bit more of an active role and, and kind of the option to heal or buff uh, and do that sort of thing. Uh, but I'm surprised by how Alchemist, having those choices in there, relying solely on items and not on magic whatsoever... And then having those items be very flexible as well. We've talked a lot about Alchemist as a healing class, but Alchemist can also mix. Alchemist can make some stuff that that could have big impact as a damage or as a buff or things like that. And honestly, the thing I'm walking away from Ten Two with, you know, we, we walked out of Final Fantasy Ten, you know, talking about how cool Riku's kit was and how different and interesting it was. And I even kind of lamented during that season that the coolest thing about Riku was hidden behind her overdrive and that you only really got to use it when, whenever her overdrive meter was up. Well, now they just in a game gave you her overdrive as a standard ability. They just said, you know what? Mm -hmm. Have fun with it. Right. And it's made me really, really like that class a lot to the point that I, you know, I also play final fantasy 14 on the side and I'm like, they should put something like this in 14. That'd be pretty cool. That would be an interesting healer class to play is mm-hmm. is to be able to that that game has lost systems already for comboing different abilities or having different routes through combos and doing that with mix would be kind of fun and make for an interesting healer class that i might actually enjoy playing and not being just a dps trash monster so <laughs> uh yeah that's my biggest takeaway is the alchemist rules i think it's mm-hmm. just a cool fun class and i want to see these this this sort of concept in future stuff especially using items because you know the only other final fantasy i can think of off the top of my head that does something like this is the chemist from final fantasy tactics and Mm -hmm. uh the way that but even then that ends up being a very base class that you just kind of have to learn so you can learn other classes or learn certain abilities from that class i would love to see more down this specific road of mixing and stashing and things like that Mm -hmm. um Anyways, we save Sid's butt. <laughs> we drag him back onto the Celsius. He and brother start arguing. Um, it, it's 
it it's like this you know this mm. is their relationship and then there's there's a line of if only i could have talked like this with my father or you with yours that that yuna has i believe um it kind of reflecting that they don't really get that stuff with their father and so it's yeah. nice that riku has that yeah, um, there are a few like moments in this chapter where yuna has like a moment to like at least acknowledge like that's not there's not a lot of that in this game and Mm-hmm. that that is I, I wish there had been more but there are at least a few kind of like you know bones that it throws to that particular yeah. relationship there's there's one that caught me off guard that i think we're going to be capping the episode off on we we're going to end this episode on a high note because i think the the last thing that we do uh here if i scroll down right yeah it's it's a good one um we can also talk to sit on board the celsius uh where where he's you know he's just giving brother a bunch of shit you know mm-hmm. he's just he's doing Sid things. Um, I'm going to use this opportunity to bring up, I, I think we forgot to mention it, but there is a scene you can have with brother specifically on the, on board the Celsius. I think you only get it if you've been resting in the bed frequently uh, between each chapter. But if you go and rest on the bed at the beginning of the chapter on board the Celsius, you get a scene with brother where he's at the bar talking to your high pillow bartender. And, he's like lamenting his relationship with Yuna and, and the bartender's kind of trying to talk him through it like a bartender does. And brother goes on this whole thing about how he's like kind of in love with Yuna, which is really weird Mm. and really strange. And I was not a fan of, but then he gets into a thing where he's like, uh, Yuna's always looking ahead and he likes it that way because he likes, you, you know, he, he says something like, even more than you know, looking at me, I prefer to see her back when she's looking ahead. And and the bartender makes a joke about like, oh, yes, you know, has nice backside. <laughs> and like, mm-hmm. uh, and brother's like, no, no, I mean, like, she's looking towards the future. And Yuna is someone who needs to be looking towards the future and, and fixing Spira for all of us. And I'd rather see her doing that than focusing on somebody like me. And mm. it all it almost made me be like, oh brother, aw, that that was that was kind of sweet. But then also you're like, oh wait, he's talking about his cousin. <laughs> mm. yeah. And you're like, oh, did they really have to have this character do this plot line? Um, yeah. but they, the they funny, did not. They the answer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I wanted to bring that up to say the brother stuff is still weird. It's been weird. It it never stopped being weird. It's always been weird. But it does also end with brother says something about like you and me bartender we're all about that bachelor life am i right and the hypello bartender's like speak for yourself and then this <laughs> other hypello comes in out of nowhere and is like oh darling how are you doing and they start like making out <laughs> and stuff and I brother's like yeah no you need to find this on youtube or something mm. it's like final fantasy 10 to brother bartender scene uh it's fantastic it's very very good um the way it ends because then later on you can go up to the celsius like the bridge and talk to pain and pain's like did i just see two high pillow making out behind the bar <laughs> and, uh it's it's very funny i think so that that character that shows up is also how you can change the names of the trainer pets that unariku and pain have you, you can change their names through her huh. uh, which is kind of a neat little easter egg but yeah yeah, I wanted to bring that up because brother weird, but also high pillow bartender good. <laughs> uh, shout outs to that and Celsius stuff. Let's head to the Wakalania Woods. 
where the woods are now just empty. They're mm-hmm. just desolate. They're nothing. I mean, there's there's no one there. And we can kind of wander around here and we can head to the area where the sphere morph was, you know, the springs that we've kind of been heading to across the crystal path. And there's a woman there and she says, Hey, you know, the, the woods are, are fading. Like the woods are going away. Mm. There's no one left here. Um, so here's something I wanted to bring up that I said, put a pin in this earlier. What exactly do they mean by the woods fading? Do they mean that like all of the entire place is just going to kind of fade out of memory or is it more of like a symbolic thing? I've never been totally clear I, on that. I, I, well, based on the fact that like the musicians thought they were just going to die with it. I thought they literally meant it was going to start like fading away in whatever way that was. Cause like, I mean the, um, like, like the faith kind of, yeah, like, like the dream of the faith. Yeah. Um, I mean, like they talk about how, like it's connected to she was faith and now that she was faith is gone mm, okay things are starting to go with it and i i just thought literally like the, the woods would not even necessarily even fade just like die and like there mm-hmm. wasn't anything like sustaining it mm-hmm. um they never i don't think they ever really explicitly get into like the nut like the minutia of what that means but i think i don't know like the specifics of what in what way it disappears is really important i think it's just that it is going to in some way not be there anymore Hmm. Okay. Okay. Kind of a larger symbolism too for, you know, the old Spira mm-hmm. dying to make way for the new Spira, which we can also have a glimpse of as we go to the travel agency. And Ken, I'm gonna let you take charge on this because I never paid off a walk of oh. <laughs> And when I showed up there was someone like running the travel agency and they're just like, Yep, we're uh, I guess we're gonna try and run this place even though there's like fiends everywhere mm-hmm. and that was like the end of that line for me. So I'm gonna let you the person who pays off their friends debts <laughs> <laughs> take charge on this one yeah so we get we get there and his brother wants us back and like we've not seen the whole game and apparently he left the agency when because he thought his job was gone because you know the the, the albed came to collect and you know they basically overtook it and awaka like they, they have a conversation about, like who's even going to come here anyway like nobody you know passes through here anymore now that the temple is gone and um, he says, he says, like, you need to start, like, thinking outside the box. Your lo- your most loyal customer is right here. And, you know, that's when they turn to us. And he basically he tells his brother, like, go go greet them. And then he does, like, a kind of, like, a resigning, like, welcome to Awaka. And then he's like, no, put some fucking back into it. Welcome to Awaka. <laughs> and, you know, like, they basically have, like, a whole, like, it's almost, it's almost like a military drill of, like, Awaka trying to get, wants to, like, just really get in the spirit of it. They start singing it at one point, and they're just, like, you know, they're just, I, I thought that was, like, a cute way to, like, end their story of, like, because, you know, we, again, we haven't seen once, I think, basically all of 10-2, and, mm-hmm. you know, there, there was, like, a certain duty that he felt to his brother when he got, you know, arrested for helping us in 10, and that's why he took it up then, but now, mm-hmm. like, you know, he's been gone, and so you're left to wonder, like, what happened, but then he talked about, like, no, I I cared about all of this at the time, I just thought my job was gone, and I thought this was, like, something that we were going to be able to do, and, you know, this this felt like a lost cause to me, and then Awaka's just kind of like, no, you've got to, you know, think about it from a different angle, think about it, how we can still salvage this, and if it is from people that come here looking for, you know, like, looking to Makalani in whatever form it takes, and, you know, trying to see what's still here, um, that that can be our customer base. There's still something here for us. Um, 
which you know in in the face of like all of the like the despair and resignation of everything that everyone had regarding this place up to this point like that is at least like a, a good note in those characters on i think mm-hmm. we don't end the episode yet though there's one more thing we gotta do in makalania we gotta head to one more spot that's been you know a, a very memorable spot for yuna and titus uh which is you gotta go all the way back to the start of the woods and head off to the to the east uh towards kind of where bevel was and uh there there's the spot where where yuna and titus were were in the lake and and first kissed and all that and suteki dane played mm-hmm. uh and they're they're looking around for a bit and obviously yuna starts feeling a certain way is like hey can can i just get like a moment alone here and riku has has a very fun moment of knowing knowing what's up and and drags pain off and pain's like mm-hmm. what you, what's going on what's I like that a lot. Mm-hmm. I think that's a fun acknowledgement of, yeah. you know, Riku was, was there for the journey and, and knew what was up, even though she was not the one watching from the bushes. That was Kimari. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> canonically, Kimari watched from the bushes. But uh, it's, uh, you know, kind of hangs out there and, and walks up to the water and whistles. And it's like, you know what? I, I don't want to call this a memory not not yet mm-hmm. you know everything else the 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 woods are fading everything's going away but yuna's not ready to give this one up yet mm-hmm. and um it's kind of kind of a weird thing I, for me personally because i didn't have the owaka stuff i think if you fully complete this one the way it's meant to be done for a hundred percent completion there is a feeling of the woods are evolving and the woods are changing but that doesn't mean the woods are going away. Like it's just going to be something new in the new Spira. You know, the Guado and the musicians are no longer there. The faith is fading, but Owaka is keeping the shop open and the memories that Yuna has are still meaningful to her. And so maybe it's not going to completely disappear, but it's just going to be something different than what it once was. Mm-hmm. But with mine, because I didn't have the Owaka stuff, it really just felt like this very, very bittersweet moment where mm-hmm. this thing is fading and, you know, it's like, I'm not letting go of this just yet. This is like very, a difference between acceptance and denial, you know? Right. <laughs> and I do think it was really sweet that there is a scene here. And also that you're not really directed to it. If you wanted this episode complete, you'd have to go find it. And I feel like there are moments like this and and like the Luca one where I don't think the Luca stuff was, was super broadcast. It was, you would have to kind of go back to where Yuna and Titus stood for that scene and Mm -hmm. and want to re-experience it. And I think the intent there, even if it is kind of messy and and not super uh, like uh, not made apparent, Mm-hmm. it's it's also a very sweet intent and very like it it acknowledges the people who played 10 had you know some resonance with those those scenes and and like literally rewards you for wanting to go back to these places and see what they were and it rewards you with more story and more understanding and even more completion percentage for mm-hmm. doing that uh i think that's really really cool and and really neat um and and the way this leaves off and especially you know, a scene that everyone who has played 10 will remember. It's, mm-hmm. it is one of the most recognizable parts of that game. Right. Uh, 
it, it was nice to have that cap off, even if it was bittersweet for me in the end. Right. And I also like that, I mean, this is something that, it, it, I guess in contrast to the Lucas section, I also like that it didn't make, make a whole, like, fucking flashback of you like, remembering that scene. And I think that, like, it, and going with this more understated thing of, like, she just kind of, like, you know, stands there, does the whistle, and, like, acknowledges something about this this place, this spot, instead of it being this thing where, like, it's like, okay, we're going to show you what she's thinking about, and now you just kind of, every, like, it's, it's a more quiet acknowledgement than the Luca thing was, which was, you know, more overt. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh... Man, this game really hits you in the heartstrings sometimes. And this was one of the moments where it really got me in the gut a little bit. Um, and then I even had a moment where I was playing that, and I was like, do I want to play Final Fantasy X again? <laughs> do I just want to play back through that game? That mm, It really reminded me why I like Final Fantasy X a great mm. deal, too. Um, anyways, we stop off at Bevel a little bit. Um, we don't really do much here this episode we'll talk a little bit about the via purifico next episode which is the super tough arguably the toughest mm-hmm. end game content um it is the end game dungeon uh we'll talk about that there there's a little bit here with marota marota has joined new yevon uh the kindergartians are also hanging out doing kindergarten stuff and marota kind of takes a jab at Asaru. um and, you know, it's kind of like, oh, maybe you should go see him in Xanarkin. So anything you want to hit in Bevel, I really, this, this was no, the we can, most, like, stop off and right. say hi and leave. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of like, it tells you to go somewhere else, basically. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so, let's, let's let's start with Saru when we get to Xanarkin before we get to the other, other stuff. I think. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say that, too. I'd rather talk about, I'd, I'd rather talk more about the other thing that happens in Xanarkin than Isaru. Because I think we, we come to Isaru... I barely remember that he was in this section, to be honest. Mm. And I was like, oh, yeah, he's here. The whole place has been shut down as a tourist attraction. Uh, he's like, um, he he likes Xanarkin because it feels familiar, even though Spira is changing and he doesn't want to be lost in the changing times. And mm. Oh, Isaru. I, I I don't know. I get, I get where this character comes from, but I wanted him to just grow a little bit mm-hmm. more and find a little bit more of himself. And he just does not. And I guess he, he is not that person, you know, he is not the person that evolves and changes. He likes the familiarity and, and has not really been able to, to let go of certain parts of his life. And if he just kind of ends up being the steward of Xanarkand, then at least he finds some comfort there and mm-hmm. finds some, some worth there. And that's good for him in, in right. that respect. I don't know. It's no, I mean that's that's about my my thoughts on him as well. Yeah. Oh, uh, oh, buddy. All all alone in the Xanarkin cloister. Come on, everybody else. Everybody else is finding love here in the end game. <laughs> <laughs> um. Anyways, the the other thing. So also, there's there's a bit about you know it's quiet now. Um, Yuna's memories are finally at peace. Um. Yuna kind of accepts that a place like this can't last forever. Um, we we have this whole nice thing about, um, you know, maybe she'll get to find something new, but she wants to protect this place. This place, uh, and she looks up at the hill again. We go back to the hill, the one from ten that you can mm-hmm. start ten out on, and uh, you know, Pain is like, "Hey, do you see something up there?" And she's like, "Maybe." 
Maybe. <laughs> I don't I I don't remember if I got that scene. I remember this scene, but I don't know if I got it on this playthrough, which is weird. Hmm. Uh, I wonder if I did something out of order or something wrong. I'm not sure. I'll have to go back and check. I have not I mean, did jumped you, in. Did you you didn't do the monkey dating fem bullshit, did no, you? No, I did not do the monkey dating bullshit. Then it might have been slightly different for for you. Because like for me, like, you know, having done that. Vanarkan is basically completely empty at this point. And, you know what I mean? It uh, still sounds like it is on your end. Yeah, um, yeah. All the tourists are gone on my end. Yeah. And I was just like, I don't know, monkey central. Mm. <laughs> just animals everywhere. It's Isaru's, Isaru builds a zoo. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, interesting. Okay, well, that's that's how that's different then. I'm kind of sad I didn't get that scene, though. That makes me... Mm. I hope that doesn't mess with my ending at all. But <laughs> um, the, the more important thing here is is Macon is here, and we can get one last speech from Macon uh, and get an achievement for listening to him every time. <laughs> but he, he wants to tell us about Vegnagun, and he says, you know, Vegnagun was never actually used, turns out. You know, Sin played a part in that, but Vegnagun was also considered a failure because it can't discern between friend or foe. Mm-hmm. And, and obviously, you know, in combat, that's not great. And we've already learned a little bit about Vegnagun at this point, the idea that Vegnagun can detect when someone means to do it harm. And mm-hmm. so will respond in kind, um, usually by running away. And it's, it's kind of a little interesting thing to kind of set up this, obviously character, this, this machina that we're going to have to go deal with at the end of the game. But also, finally asking the million dollar question the girls are are asking megan how do you learn all this how do you know so much about everything in spira even things that happened a thousand years ago and megan's like oh well i could tell you but it'd easier probably just show you uh and then you see pyreflies uh fly off of his body and they are all obviously shocked he says uh he hadn't realized it for the longest time he's literally been unsent for so long that he didn't even know he was unsent and then finally learned it when way back in i believe it was chapter one or two chapter one yeah yeah uh you can shake his hand and that's when he remembers it because it reminded him of shaking len's hand a thousand years ago he was the dude in the mm-hmm. sphere exclaiming how excited he was that he got to shake Len's hands. That's, that's Macon. Mm-hmm. And uh, he kind of starts to reflect, you know, he's, he's been this guy that's just been obsessed with learning and history and Spira and Xanarkand and all that. And uh, he's, he has this really, I, I honestly think beautiful speech about seeing, you know, he's had many, Mm-hmm. He's met many people and he's said goodbye to just as many and, and all of his, everyone he's ever known has come and gone in his life, but he's always stuck around. And um, at this point, like his memories start to project out around him. And we even see Braska's group at the campfire in the same place that, that Yuna's group had been prior to Xanarkand. And, and, you know, Yuna ex- exclaims in disbelief seeing Braska there and uh Macon apologizes he says you know sometimes when I remember too much I I lose control of my memories and then he he kind of fades off 
Mm-hmm. And um, he, I think it's I think it's left up in the air whether this is him kind of finally coming to terms and and sending you know full send as the kids say <laughs> and uh, I, I I think it's I think it is him finally you know drifting off into the far plane yeah, drifting off into the afterlife well. um, yeah but Yuna Yuna does say like we hope we meet again. Yeah, um, and it was it was really sweet. I yeah, really that was like the scene. Like of all of the storylines in Tintu of like of the, like the side characters, not like you know the the main characters, like the, the trios that we deal with. That was the one that for like almost twenty years now has always stuck with me the most because I felt like it was the most. I felt like new understanding that I had come to any mm-hmm. of those characters mm-hmm. in Tintu compared to where I what I knew of them in Ten. Like you know. In ten, you know, he, he's he's this old guy. He likes to tell stories, and you know that's a, you know, a, a fun character to have to kind of like be the lore dump constantly. But intend to like they they just ask like, how do you know all this stuff? Like wh- like what is how are you this like walking encyclopedia of spirits history? And then it just all kind of clicks in a way. You know whether that was something that they had considered in ten, like you know as far back as ten is that's not really the point. Ultimately, just like that was something that they did that recontextualized kind of just everything that we'd ever seen in this character before. And in a way that, you know, it felt very meaningful and like it, and it ties into like you know, the Len Yuna like parallels. Like it, mm-hmm. it does tie into the main story a lot. Like you know, a lot of times he's come in and like been a very convenient kind of like exposition dump on things like mm-hmm. Len, things to Chewie and, mm-hmm. and that's, you know, that's a good character to have. And I think like giving him an in-text reason as to why he's able to speak so authoritatively on these things was very good, and it, you know, ends on this very, you know, this bittersweet moment that, um, yeah, it just it it stuck with me more so than any of the other side stories in this game. And I've been like very quiet about it this entire season because like I don't think Eric knows this, and I don't want I don't want to spoil it because it's just a really great reveal. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. It's I, I I had honestly forgotten this was a thing that happens, and uh, it it really does. I think this was the other part of this end section that made me want to go play final fantasy 10 again, Mm. because now this character that I always kind of overlooked or just looked at and been like, Oh yeah, you know, he's a nice, nice dude. Little guy knows a lot of history. Like you said, uh, now he's this very different, almost like sad, depressing character. Mm -hmm. And, um, it's, it just was very touching in a way. And also knowing that, I think there's a lot of emotional attachment knowing that he also he had memories of Braska mm. and, and Oren inject. And so obviously like we'd known before that he had followed kind of all the different summoners and seen them all through. But in terms of the old spear of fading, it was also this, this guy who could finally drift off into the afterlife knowing that someone like Yuna was there knowing that Yuna was there to lead Spira into a new mm-hmm. place. I got kind of the feeling that part of the reason he had stuck around was because much like Shuyin and Len, he had seen Spira repeat cycles over and over again of violence and hate and, mm-hmm. and things even beyond sin that uh, were problems between people. And now that he had finally seen someone like Yuna that could lead Spira mm-hmm. into a better time and a better era, he was able to finally be at peace yeah. And I think that's a very nice way to leave that character off. Is, is that like 
there's no longer a need for the historian to remind everyone of all the ways in which things have gone wrong because now there's finally somebody who's leading Spira into a place mm-hmm. that it won't do things wrong and it might do things right and right. yeah I like that a lot I, I think it was just a very sweet little moment that uh again when you talk about things that I almost wish were on the critical path it's so right. weird to me that you could easily just jump down a hole here and skip all of chapter five if you wanted to mm-hmm. Um, so I'm assuming we're talking about Mount Gagazette next episode. Uh, it looks like, and we're also, we'll also be talking about, uh, the calm lands and beacon L and Jose and Bevel, the view purifico and den of woe. I'm kind of going over everything we're talking about next episode. I'm looking at this and I don't know why I moved Gagazette to next episode. Do we want to do Gagazette real quick? We should do Gagazette. Like I, I, I'd mostly say the stuff that I moved things that we were not going to actually play yeah um, yeah i think that's a better way so all the end game boss battle dungeon type stuff will be next episode. So that's bevel uh via purifico uh the the beacon l stuff um jose den of woe those sorts of things we can talk about gagazette real quick so uh we we head in we had to check in on kamari and Garrick is once again causing shit. Garrick is once again being an upstart. And and being like, oh, Kimari's not a leader. Kimari's not a good leader. I, I'm mad. I You're no elder to me. I'm mad mm-hmm. about everything. The Guado are still terrible. And, and I want to punch things. And I'm Garrick. <laughs> <laughs> and just storms off. And we, we go up and we're like, hey, Kimari, like, what's up? And he's he's ashamed. Um he's not happy about it um you know we and we kind of try to work with kamari and get him through some of this stuff and as we're kind of you know trying to work him through all of this and help him out lean and nate are back and uh they're like hey sorry you know we ventured all over uh but we could not find a way to restore kamari's horn and kamari has a very sweet line that's like loss of horn is is much prefer much more preferable to loss of Lee and an aid mm-hmm. or something like that. And I was like, Oh, Kamari, you are, you're a good elder. Damn it. <laughs> and, um, I, I think the really sweet part for, for two characters that we have not seen too much of up to this point is that they start to tell us about their journeys across Spira and they say they met so many people and they learned so much and they're already planning their next excursion. They, mm-hmm. they want to go back on the journey because, they they just want to meet more people and their worldview has been expanded because of this. And Kamari kind of has this own internal realization that the journey was more valuable to them than staying on the mountain. You know, the, that the mountain and the traditional ways of the Ronso are not what they used to be. And that if, you know, one wants to be truly open-minded and grow the Ronso into something new, they can't just stick to the ways of the mountain. And I think, this has some parallels to Kamari himself because I feel like his whole character has been about the struggles between who he is and trying to maintain what the Ronso have been. Mm. And I think this brings it around really well because Kamari, unlike the other Ronso that have been living on the mountain their whole lives, uh, Kamari traveled the world. Kamari went on a pilgrimage and Kamari did a bunch of things that changed the way that Kamari saw a lot of people and explains why Kamari is not, so bloodthirsty against the guado it explains why kimari is 
uh, a little bit more cool with letting people learn and, and with mm-hmm. being accepting of more people on the mountain. And uh, I, I really, really liked it. And yeah. so now Kimari kind of resolves and is like, hey, I'm going to go confront Garrick. So it's, we'll, we'll get to that in a moment. But how do you feel about this lean and aid stuff specifically? I think it leads into, I mean, well, I guess that's kind of getting ahead of ourselves. Like, I, I had been very iffy on a lot of Kamari's role in this game just because, like, I felt it was almost as, like, stagnant as Lulu felt mm-hmm. in a lot of places. Mm-hmm. And I think, to, and, like, to his credit, I just think a lot of it is backloaded. And I think Lean and Aid going about their journeys and, like, because, like, you see the contrast between them, these two Ronso that have been open to leaving Gagazette and, like, going out and exploring and meeting new people where you have Garrick who has been stuck here his entire life, has a very specific view of things because he's never left. And mm-hmm. I like... Because, I mean, we, we spent a lot of time talking about, like, what the future of Spira looks like for all these different factions and different places in this world. But, like, there are some places like Gagazette, like Guadalajara, that are very insular, like, in terms of, like, the, the culture they represent in this world. And so, like, they, you know, despite being separate, they were still part of the same cycle that everyone else was tied up in in the first game. But here, they have they have to reckon with that in a different way. And a lot of, like, you know, the Ronso, like, their very own culture within a world that is largely monolithic because of the Evan. And so, like, they have to figure out what their future looks like, and that's what Garrick is frustrated about. And... It's almost kind of charming how Lean and Age is kind of, like, returning and, like, feeling so invigorated by this journey they've been on. It's kind of like the the light bulb goes off in Kamari instead of, like, oh, the solution was so simple. And so, yeah, I, I like how these two, again, like, things that you can completely miss if you're not in the right place at the right time uh, kind of signal, like, a, a, they're, they're a spark that, you know, lights a new flame within the Ronso. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, like, Kimari goes to confront Garrick, and they start arguing, and Garrick gets physical, and Yuna even, like, gets ready to run up and back Kimari up, but Kimari's like, nah, and just show Ryukens Garrick in, mm. in the jaw, and uh, is like, Garrick's like, this is pointless, you still can't give Kimari an answer, and Kimari says, no, needing an answer from me shows that you're still a pup. You can't come up with your own answer. And so you, mm-hmm. you're begging one from me. And he points to Lee and an aid. And he says, they, they found their purpose. They explored the world. They looked elsewhere. You know, they, they looked to the children. They looked to the mountain. They drank <laughs> from the rivers. They flowed from the fountain. Mm. Uh, who thought we were going to get an indigo girls, re- indigo girls reference here. <laughs> and Kamari says this is the future we have to do uh, but we're going to find that future together and finally they we cut to the statue of Kamari being established at the top of the mountain and it's it's him looking glorious gazing off onto the horizon and Garrick's like oh do you want to put a full horn on it because Kamari's has the horn cut off and Kamari's like nah I want I want to look to the future rather than look back on what's been lost and everyone starts cheering along live Kimari. Um, and, and Eunice is better than looking back on things lost. He said, pains like, oof, <laughs> got him. <laughs> uh, oh, look at that. I've been impaled. Yeah. Yeah. 
and I like the the moment when they're getting ready to leave and they're like, wait, where's Riku? And Riku is in the middle of all the Ronso just cheering mm-hmm. and, and celebrating. I thought that was fun. But mm-hmm. yeah, I, I agree with yeah. everything you've said. And this kind of like brings it full circle is that, you know, Kimari's story ends up ultimately being very rewarding in the sort of moment of them being like, we need to stop isolating ourselves and we need to learn more. We need to incorporate more because living on the mountain by ourselves, you know, the mountain can teach us things, but other people can also teach us things. The future of Spira mm-hmm. is one that is connected mm-hmm. and, and one that is an exchange and, you know, we can maintain our own culture, but still learn from others. And I'd rather look forward mm-hmm. and especially not look back on things that have been lost. You know, right. Kamari's horn has been, a running thing through all of Final Fantasy X and to have him finally be at peace with it and be like, mm. no, that this is who I am. This is this is what I've done and this right. is this is what has made me me is is very nice. Yeah, and I also think it's interesting, like compared to things like the Luca section and Makalania for a character to be like like letting go of the past can be freeing and you can mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, and you know, not looking back on things lost and like again like you know it's like, oh that felt very barbed. Okay. Mm-hmm. Because I think, like, there's something interesting, and we'll get to it, you know, next week, or next episode. There's something to be said about, like, this game has multiple endings, but, like, there is one that is, like, technically, you know, the canon one, the the good one, as it is kind of framed in this. But I think there's something to be said about, like, the different ways this game can end and what you can kind of take from the game with those alternate endings. And I think, you know, we'll get into what I, I, I think, like, depending on which ending you, if you... If this were a situation like, say, Mass Effect, where, like, you were picking an ending, you know, based on a choice more so than, like, seeing a completion or, like, seeing, you know, what, again, like, what the game d- determines as the good and right choice, um, I think, you know, Tentu can have different overarching meanings, and I think that's interesting to think about and mm-hmm. consider here, especially, like, as you're getting these different perspectives about, like, what it, what your relationship to the past and things that you've lost should be, which we can, you know, we can... We'll talk more about next episode, but I just I think it's interesting that you do see these conflicting ideals as to what it means to hold on to the past or want things that were in your past, and mm-hmm. yeah, we'll we'll get into that less vaguely next episode. Yeah, yeah, we'll have some stuff to delve into there. Uh, even not even just with the end game stuff, but with stuff like the Via Infinito, which I just realized I've been saying Purifico the whole freaking podcast the via purifico is the jail you get thrown into in final fantasy 10 the via infinito is the other <laughs> uh basement bevel has so many basements there's so much stuff mm-hmm. under bevel someone needs to be checking i mean really no one needs to be checking that out but it seems like a lot of bad stuff is under bevel uh almost like it's a metaphor mm. but uh yeah, we'll t- we'll talk about that. We'll talk about Beaconel. As always, we are Normandy FM. We are a retrospective podcast. We cover all types of games, ranging from Mass Effect to Dragon Age to now we're on to Final Fantasy X and it, all its related content. And soon, very soon, Cyberpunk 2077. We're already working on planning all that out. We've got so many guests planned out already and even more uh, that... I personally need to <laughs> to work on talking to and getting scheduled, but uh, we're, we're going to have a lot of fun stuff with that. We're really looking forward to it. 
As always, you can support us by heading over to patreon.com slash normandyfm and backing us there. Uh, this is not our job. This is not our, our profession. We have other stuff that we do during the day, but backing us there helps support the things we do, uh, provide support to the people that help us out on the podcast, and also uh, you know, make it easier to host all of the files and stuff that we got to take care of. Uh, at the lowest level, you get into the backer discord where you can hang out and chat with us and get updates on all the shows and stuff. At the next highest level, you get these episodes as soon as Ken is done editing them, which at this point, how far ahead we're recording, you could be very far ahead of the feed at this point. Uh, the free feed that is out there, I should say. And at the highest level, you get your name shout out every episode on the podcast. And this episode, that list is just Mercedes Cluis, Meredith, Micah Manthe, and Shane Erickson. Thank you all so much for contributing and backing the things, things we do here at Normandy FM. If you can't monetarily donate, that's cool. We get it. Uh, maybe head to your podcatcher. Give us a little review. Give us you know that five star. Uh, that helps us get the word out. That helps us share with more people. And it has to be five star or Ken will be very upset with you. That, <laughs> that's just how this works. But uh, the algorithm likes it when podcasts have reviews. And we are trying to at least get our retrospectives out to more people. Uh, so if you want to help us out and, and get more people listening, share it around and and boost us on the podcatcher of your choice, and that'll help a bunch. But for now, we're heading into the end of 10-2. Next episode will be the final 10-2 episode of Normandy FM. We are literally there already. We are going to fight Vegnagun. We're going to talk about youtube videos of people fighting harder bosses than we want (laughs) and who knows maybe we'll even see a familiar face or two at the very very end and then the week after that we will head into sorry the episode after that we will head into all the very very accompanying final fantasy agony always just out of reach uh we will cover all of that uh but for now for ken for myself for the agony that we contain within ourselves we will see you next time on normandy fm